Um, welcome, everybody. My name is uh, Sinesipa Manindra, Manindra, for those of you who don't know me, and welcome to the Status Quo Conversations. Um, today, I have a very, very interesting guest that I'm speaking to, um, quite different to my usual guests, and um, we're having a man, which is different, because I usually have women. Um, so, um, his name is Ayabonga Tawe, and I'll allow him to introduce himself. Hey, Stensipo, and yeah, um, hi to the status quo uh, uh, folk. I don't know if I, it's a hive or, or what, <laughs> Stensipo. But yeah, am I the first guy on this platform? You're the second. Um, so okay, all right, at least. The second guy. No, at least, we... like, fine. Yes. <laughs> cool, man. Yeah, so uh, just give me a second. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So, so, uh, and build a nation out of very, yeah, very, very many nations and very, very many societies in the same space. Mm. Thank you so much for the intro. Um, for those people who don't know the name of the book, the book that we are talking about is the book that I wrote, which is The Economy on Your Doorstep. Um, one of the things I, I just wanted to ask is um, so we're going to just chat about um, your background. What made you um, move from being a, a traditional economist to more focused on the developing economist side of things? What made you shift? Yeah, so, so I think, I mean, I can't pinpoint a moment, um, nor can I say, I guess there was just like a, a Damascus type thing where at some stage I thought I was going to be a bank economist or, or somebody who works primarily in the financial services sector, which I think a lot of the people I went to school with did, you know. Um, I, so I came from a, I guess, a, a political family. Um, you know, my folks were sort of involved in the trade union movement. Um, and I think in many ways that that was probably a very big influence, but also growing up in a very small settler, colonial, conservative, hyper conservative town, um, you know, is, is really, really, I guess, you know, it leaves such a big imprint. You know, you, you begin to see that actually there's two very, very distinct worlds here. Um, and that's why I start the book um, at that specific point. I start the book, you know, with a, a black woman being shot, you know, uh, on her way back home from a funeral. Uh, and, and in many ways, that is the entry point of a story that uncovers multiple layers of what's so problematic about our society. Um, so for me, the choice then to, I think, to study economics after, um, I mean, I, at some stage, I thought I was maybe going to do accounts and, and maybe, you know, do something else. But I got to Wits and I think, uh, the one option that I had was to do like a, um, a BCom law. Um, and I did economics for the first year. And then I realized, you know what, let me just drop the law thing. And I ended up taking uh, economics and finance as majors. Um, and I think at the end of my second year, uh, where we had a choice of what electives you would take sort of to lead you to your final year in your undergrad, um, I didn't take the development courses. 
um, because I wanted, I mean, I knew that at third year I was going to choose them as electives anyway. So I ended up taking a bit of the quants courses. Um, uh, and then when I got to third year, I just realized, you know, like this is pointless um, and ended up taking a very eclectic mix like of financial economics, public economics, uh, alongside, of course, the macro micro. Um, and I think by the end of my undergraduate, I was quite clear on the path of economics I was going to take. Uh, because I was quite interested in policy then. So I think you get to a point where you learn all of these theories and there's a big question mark then, how do you think of these as part of the mix of actions that people make in different spaces? Um, and, and then that's when I decided to take up, you know, for my honors and my master's studies, uh, development economics. Uh, and I think it was quite helpful because Already, even by the time I finished studying, we were already being roped into things, you know, to do. I, I mean, I remember we were part of, um, you know, we created a, a, a group called Young Economists for Africa at WITS um, and, and, you know, which later became Rethink Africa. And the idea even then, like this is 2012, uh, was we were going to create a group of young people who were interested in like political economy stuff and already by then link them up with like key policymakers. So we, we would call up the guys at the DTI, call up the guys at the Treasury, you know, even at the UN and say, hey, you know, we want to talk about bilateral investment treaties. We've been reading some of the stuff. We don't know, like, um, the rationale behind it. Come through and explain it. I mean, I think at one stage, we even got a guy from the European Parliament, um, you know, to come and join us with the DTI at uh, one of our events. So... So I think by then already, I, I was quite clear. I mean, I think we worked on a Pasatu economists panel, uh, some of the work on, on the critique of the NDP then. So we were, and the group I was part of then were quite clear of what role we felt we would play. Um, and I think that that's been something that has been for me an enduring thing, irrespective of the different spaces I've operated in. Uh, this idea that uh, there's a massive link between scholarship policy and like, the real effect and practice uh, of making decisions informed by theory, data, evidence. Um, and so for me, that is as much of my own uh, political outlook and vantage point as it is part of my uh, professional or activist scholarship practice, if I can put it that way. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm happy to, you know, to, to, to always be persuaded on some of these things, but I, I still am very you know, very much, Nessif, and you would know this, very much um, inclined to a, a more sort of left-wing socialist type of uh, outlook of our society, because it just doesn't make sense to think that, you know, unfettered market capitalism or market fundamentalism is going to resolve the social tensions of the most unequal society in the world. I just don't see it. Mm. No, that's quite interesting. Um, as you know, I, I, I live in the middle Every now and then, I'm a capitalist at heart. Yeah, you're like a social democrat. You, I like really a, am. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I really am a social democrat. I think I think one of the things um, I believe that the the incentive structure of capitalism, the incentive structure, the the that part I believe in, the inequality exploitation. Because I do believe there is a way to create wealth without exploitation. I, well, but I mean, Stacey Paul, yeah, we can have this debate, but yeah, I, I yeah, think, I, 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 mean, I believe, I believe look, in it. I believe look, in it. Look, I'm not a communist, right? Um, I'm a socialist, though, I can tell you that, because 
to be honest, I don't know what communism is, but what I do understand about socialism is that you can have an incentive structure to expand your productive forces, because if you want to make sure that you get, uh, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, you're going to have to have very strong technological advancement and productive forces in your society to do that. Um, so, so, but I mean, yeah, we can talk, we can talk about that. That's a very theoretical and philosophical debate. Definitely. Um, so how did, how did a development economist end up being on radio? Yeah, that's a very interesting story. So I think after I finished, um, you know, with, with my academic training. And so I finished a master's in 2013 at WITS, uh, and did some of my work on Transnet's supplier development program. Uh, which is quite interesting because a lot of the people that later came up, you know, at the, at the Zondo Coalition in some shape or form, um, you know, were some of the people I'd interviewed, were some of the people I'd had to, you know, uh, uh, sort of read presentations from memos and whatever to put that together. Um, yeah, and one day I'll, I'll write the story of that. Um, but I then went thereafter into, into like consulting work um, and left that, went into the NGO sector, and I worked at Oxfam, uh, you know, had a great time as the economic justice program manager, um, where really we were working on, you know, building a knowledge base around inequality. So in South Africa, we talk about this poverty, unemployment, and inequality. And there's like a lot of work that goes into the poverty side. There's a lot of work that goes into uh, the unemployment part. But I think until fairly recently, probably over the last decade or so, there wasn't really a very strong body of knowledge on South African inequality um, across the different like income distributions or across the wealth distribution. So, so we, we were, you know, to some degree involved in some of that work, supporting it, you know, uh, making grants and that kind of thing. Um, and then I remember, I mean, at some stage, to be honest, I just felt like, you know, um, what is the next thing? Um, because, I, I do think you know civil society is a great space to operate in, uh, and you learn a considerable amount. Um, but I also think it's not one of the places um, that you want to go to unless you want to be there for for a very long time. Uh, and I think you know I'd encourage people who uh, you know are really interested in that kind of work uh, um, to to really continue to do that work. But for me, I, I saw it as an extension of struggle, um, as I see the work I do on radio. Uh, but I got a call one day from Kevin Mkari, and he was like, look, dude, um, I'd like to talk to you. Um, and I was like, yeah, about what, you know? Um, so I made the time, we sat, we, we had a discussion, and he, he felt that, he, like, um, you know, I should consider doing the radio thing. So, look, I thought about it and said, yeah, look, I'll come back to you. I mean, um, and after a while, I had given it some thought, and I actually decided to just do it. And I must say, it's probably been one of the most, aside from consulting, one of the most fascinating, yeah, maybe I'd say, you know, I think the civil society space, you learn so much uh, just about policy, about advocacy. But I think radio is such, in terms of the breadth of what you can learn and how quickly you do it, is, is fascinating. Um, and as I said, I mean, I see it as an extension of struggle. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was so fascinating, but also there's a certain type of power that comes with it, right? There are, there are people who, as a researcher, will never want to talk to you um, or will never give you time of day. 
But if you're calling them from like the SABC, it's an entirely different conversation. Uh, people are, are, a lot, are more open to like giving you some time and, and, and listening to what you have to say um, if you come with that type of thing or if you're coming just generally from any media house. Um, and yeah, that's how, that's how I ended up on radio. I mean, it was, uh, and for me, it was also a tactical choice because at the time I just started a business, um, like a research, you know, and uh, advisory and like a production unit linked to that. Um, and I really needed to free up a lot more time from a day-to-day, -day, you know, um, nine to five. And to be honest, there's no nine to five in civil society, which also makes it very fascinating. So, you know, a lot of travel, a lot of working on weekends. Um, and so I needed a bit more time to be able to just dedicate to seeding this business and, and you know, giving, giving it some space to operate. Um, and yeah, um, so that, I think that's how, that's how it unfolded. And, and since then, I mean, you know, I, I've worked at Power, did two shows there left and now at Metro. Um, and yeah, I think do what a lot of people expect it to be a typical business show, but, but I certainly don't think it is. Um, and yeah, and as I said, it's, 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 I think, very important that we continue to hold spaces, um, at least of all among us Black people, um, that are able to have these discussions that connect the dots. Um, and, I, and I think in many ways, I see the, the platform of media and radio more broadly as that. But I, I've also been working in the media longer than I've been on radio. So I worked in, you know, uh, digital print since around 2015. I mean, I, I wrote for the Daily Maverick since about 2015, um, you know, and started writing at the Business Day in 2017. Um, so I've been, I've been at it for a while. Mm, no, that's, 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 that's actually quite good. Um, very, very, very good. I didn't know that. I actually, I think I only saw your columns when, uh, from Business Day onwards. I think that's when I started seeing your columns from Business Day onwards. Um, what are you, in terms of in all of these roles, what has been sort of your goal through this? Because you've done a bit of research, did some policy work um, in terms of the Davis Commission, um, the tax advisory um, policy work, um, spent some time in civil society now in broadcasting, writing. What has been the goal that has been sort of the underlying crux of the decision-making that sort of made you choose all these different spaces? So I think for me, it's the other way around. So the spaces are, so if you would think about it as like a filter, the spaces are the last leg of that filter. Hmm. The starting point is how do I use the toolkit that I have, which I think expands every day um, in a way that is of service um, to our people, and I think that is of service to what I feel is our generational mission. And our generational mission is very simple, is to complete the incomplete economic tasks of this nation building process that we're part of. And I don't mean that nation building in a very naive, you know, kumbaya, teddy bear type approach, no. Um, but out of an understanding that this thing that we call South Africa is not even 200 years old, you know? Um, so so we, we're a young country. We, we have a very young revolution in South Africa. We are at still the very early stages of whatever might be seen as nation formation. And I see the toolkit and my own motivations as something that can be of service to 
that society. Now, the choice of platform follows that. Um, so if it's in civil society, if it's in you know, radio, if it's in business, if it's in politics, all of that follows, I think for me, the first thing, which is how do you make sense? And I think in every, if, if, if you read the history in every stage of any national struggle, the same thing happens. I mean, you know, take the Afrikaners before you go anywhere else, take the Afrikaners here. Uh, after 1910, they are seized with the same thing. You take the, you know, um, people of other parts of the world, the Irish and others, uh, who have come from a situation where they have been uh, oppressed by some imperial power in some shape or form. Vietnam, China, Japan, um, they are faced with the same question of this generational task to set the nation on a particular type of trajectory um, that then consolidates and extends, um, you know, its, its reach, not only uh, in the lives of the people that it governs over, but also in the community of nations across the world. So that's how I see it. Then the platforms on, they fit in there. I mean, tactically at whatever stage. And that's why I'll never essentialize, uh, you know, working in a particular space and saying, yeah, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's who I am. No, uh, I don't think so. I think for me, my interests and my general curiosities are more foundational to who I am than whatever platform I'm on at whatever point in time. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Um, I'm just going to touch on the word revolution since we are in a young country. Sure. The events of the, the last two weeks, thoughts, do you think they are um, part of a bigger struggle of being heard? Of being heard? Because a couple of weeks ago, I was chatting to Uziyanda Asturman, and mm. we spoke about the fact that in 2012, 2013 alone, there were 12,000 um, protests in South Africa. Mm. So that was close to 10 years ago. And now we're, we've, we've experienced um, a level of, I think, violence and looting that our country has not experienced. I don't think we've ever experienced this level. Yeah, look, I mean, so, so is the question, do, do I see this as, a, yeah. as an outpouring of that social discord? Yeah. Or are you, are you asking, do I see it as something that has revolutionary potential? Both, actually. Okay, I think on the first one, uh, I would agree that, of course, it's an outpouring of some social discord. Um, and... I would also agree with your assessment that this has a much longer term horizon than just what we've seen on the 13th and the 14th of July. Um, you know, Zianda is correct. I think even the people at Municipal IQ would be correct in suggesting that there's a long cumulative experience of micro protests, if I can put it like that, that do this. And in many ways, the sort of spark of the incarceration of former President Zuma is in a way binding of all of those bases of social discontent, least of all in KZN. So, I, so for an example, if you go to the uh, former industrial park of the homeland of Guazulu, Istebe in Mandin, two years ago, there was burning and looting at the same industrial park that was hit at the same time during these protests. Two years ago, the provincial government in KZN is lamenting the siege on trucks on the N3. So all of the tactical things that have been done here 
are the same. What has been extended now is the hit on warehouses, is the hit on the food and basic you know, commodity supply chains, uh, in addition to what has been done on the N3. But if you add the rail dimension to it, it then just becomes something else. I mean, the end, the, what is called the Natal Corridor, uh, connecting critical parts of Transnet's infrastructure uh, through its rail backbone. Mm. Um, and the hitting of that, fleecing of copper, you know, copper prices are quite high at the moment. So all of that happens at a time where, you know, it comes long before what happened in July. So I think for me, the, the social discord has always been there. But what is very particular about this instance in KZN is that the social discord meets a particular type of um, criminality, if I can say that, that has a long running track record of hit targeting particular pieces of infrastructure. And then you add on to that what I argue is the fratricide in the ANC. Now, fratricide is, you know, um, in a way, you know, massive contest between people who have some familiar link, brotherhood, or, you know, whatever I can call it. And in this case, the spillovers of the fratricide inside of the ANC connect with all of these different currents that are happening. Mm. So yes, the first question, if there's social discord, I agree. The second one, is it revolutionary? My argument is that it's not. I think it's actually counter-revolutionary because the idea of it is to, at least its apex political aim, is to create generalized chaos and destabilization to get political concessions. And those political concessions might be of an informal political, economic, and administrative class. Uh, so for instance, you can't separate the Delangogbona phenomenon. You can't separate the, uh, this phenomenon of you know, going to sites, asking for 30%, the business forum phenomenon from what's happening here. Nor can you separate the particular RET type faction in the ANC um, and some of the concerns and the mobilizations that have happened around there from the broader current of this. So yeah, it has multiple layers, but for me, the layer that I cannot recognize is a progressive layer that is able to respond to the primary discord, which is around a crisis of social reproduction, a crisis of underutilization of labor and productive capacity in the economy, uh, which accounts for why there's so many people who are outside of employment. Capitalism doesn't need warm human bodies anymore to accumulate, it doesn't. And I'm saying that once we deal with those issues, then we can maybe get to, to a much better understanding, but I don't think it's revolutionary. Mm. I'm with you almost, if it wasn't for the fact that the conversations around the basic income grant have it's been put on the spotlight again, where it, it wasn't, it hasn't been in a very long time. So I, they may, their actions may not be revolutionary, but their impact, so considerations like the basic income grant, the fact that now they're reopening the funding model, they're reopening the discussions, something that hasn't been a hallmark of this uh, presidency in a very long time, a hallmark of this presidency hasn't been something the this presidency has active um, um, campaigned for or presented as an idea. This is something that they've always it's always been there, but it's not been um, 
our current leadership dispensation doesn't speak to it, but they're now reopening conversations. So, but, but there's a difference between a revolutionary situation and a revolutionary action, mm. planned revolutionary action. And I'm saying South Africa, because of the hunger and all of the things I've been talking about, is a revolutionary situation. Now, you can organize people for good, but you can also organize people for bad things. Now, I, I'm not sure I accept an argument that says the issue of the basic income grant has now been urgently expedited um, because of what we've seen. My experience of the last five years, and I think the experience of many people I've worked with who have been working on this since 2002, is actually different to that. I mean, if you think about the debates on the introduction of the social relief of distress grant during the COVID-19 moment, um, that was a big part of it. Uh, and what, I, what I'm saying is that I don't think that what has happened has not catalyzed that moving train, but to suggest that that train had stopped and what happened over the last few weeks or so is what has put it back on the rails, uh, I think would be an overestimation of uh, the impact of this on um, government planning and the impact of this on uh, the prioritization of a broader social wage intervention. Mm. Mm. No. I think it's been happening. I mean, go, you know, go and read the Taylor report. Vivian Taylor, who wrote the social protection section, even in the NDP, um, and even as recently as last year, I think was part of a process in, in the ANC, um, which sort of led, I think, to the social relief of distress grant. And we can talk about what those fights have meant. Mm. But I think if what you're suggesting is the side that has been limiting that advance uh, is now more open to that discussion, then I can agree with you there. But, no. but the attribution for me is, is a bit of an issue. I, I don't think by going and burning a distribution house, you've triggered the need now for a basic income grant. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So, I'm not so sure I it follows. It's triggered the need. I, I say that it's, um, so I think we, I'm not disputing. We all know the work has been going um, with Prof Ready, um, has been even National Planning Commission days. It's, it's been, the work has been there. The willingness to listen and to say, to, to, to actually. So the willingness to listen of who? Maybe that's a good place no, to start. No, no, no. So, 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 I'm, I'm like, so we say, because the thing is that, remember, even within um, the ANC and even the political leadership, the willingness to listen by the financial cluster. This financial thing. Okay. Okay. I get you there. Cluster. Okay. They sure. Sure. Not to say, you know, the thing is that I don't think the Revolutionary Act is, um, but the willingness to listen, the, I sometimes think that our leadership, our political leadership is very far removed from the reality. I don't know how you can be far removed and be a black person in this country, but for some reason, there's, there seems to be a gap. There seems to be so, some, some, I don't think it's possible yeah. to be a black person and you're far removed. 90% of my family is unemployed. Like, <laughs> I can't be far removed. I can't be far removed if I wanted to be, because I don't think mm. it's possible. Even, even though I, I live well, I don't think- I mean, so, so Snesibo, let me, let me give you a, um... Another example, which maybe places this in perspective. Um, I mean, during the fees must fall moment, there were many people who, who said, former president Jacob Zuma making the announcement at Nazrek, I think it was, or a day before Nazrek or something like that, um, was 
I, I can't recall what the saying was, but they said it was um, catalyzed by the factions inside the ANC, right? So he wanted to get one up uh, on the CR-17, whatever. I think that was what, what was said. Um, and that then, I guess, you know, and even people like Blade Zamanda now come back and say, well, that wasn't a, a smart decision to make. But I'm quite interested in whether or not you saw that moment as a revolutionary advance. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I don't think it was because- Is this discussion now? Or no, 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 I, 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 don't think that, that, I don't think it was, okay. Advance. I, I, I don't think it was, and I'll tell you why. Um, I don't think it was an advancement because of the structure of implementation. So I, I don't think we're comparing apples and apples here. I'll tell you why. The work on basic income grant has close to 20 years body of knowledge, body of knowledge, implementation, funding models, consideration. It has been well thought out in terms of how do you implement it? At what rate do you implement it? Intervention, it has been. The announcement, I think, was a shock value, was for shock value, because even when we, when we think about how it's implemented now, we still have a situation where students are unable to graduate because of outstanding fees. We still have a situation where um, we are, where people are not able to access access and um, access institutions of higher learning due to lack of funding even though the announcement was made so the announcement went before the process i think sometimes we want to skip the process i'm a believer in taking the time to formulate the policy the implementation and having that go 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 through quite um Quite, and then go through execution phase. That announcement. Yes. That's my that is that it is. That's why I say it's quite different in that it wasn't well thought out the implementation, and then you've had all the situations with NASFAS. And again, and again, it was because it literally was an idea. He just woke up one day. Jay Z mm -mm. just woke up one day, and he was That's like, today. That's simple. The comparison I draw is on resistance breaking down because your point is that the financial cluster is now more open to listening to that conversation mm. and i'm saying that even if it's by fiat or whatever at some stage even the jacob zuma administration did not have a willing ear to this thing your free education and i'm saying the typical example here is also on the point i make around fratricide inside of the anc that even the issues of factions then released a process. So it, in effect, the factional contests led to an announcement on free education. The mm. factional contests in the current moment, by your suggestion, are leading to a more urgent discussion on the basic income grant. It's on that basis that I make the comparison. And I'm saying an urgent discussion is necessary, but it's not a sufficient condition to deal with the between 18 to 59 age group in South Africa that has no work, has no possibility of, in any meaningful way, finding work the way employment growth demand is set up in South Africa. So what do you do with that type of cohort in a society where the things you need to survive need money? Hmm. Do you get what I'm saying? So, no, so, so for me, I, I don't know if it's a revolutionary advance. I, I'm not sure. I'm not hearing things 
um, that are suggesting to me that the basic income grant is on the table and that people are realizing that we can't afford not to have it. I'm not hearing that. What I'm seeing is the potential for more austerity. That's, that's maybe what I'm seeing. Uh, and we all know austerity doesn't work. We all mm. know. Uh, the Greeks taught us austerity doesn't work. Hey, they the protested. Greeks, yeah. No, they, yeah. they, they protested. They, were, they, were, they did a self, their government self-inflicted and austerity yeah. didn't work. They were protests. So, so so I think it's nice about, let me maybe put it like this. I, and there's a piece I, I put together and I think I need to uh, maybe sort of get it published soon. Uh, and I argue that this moment is, was very similar to like a Nong Naose moment in, in the history. Um, especially if your reading of Nong Naose is not as just some superstitious kid or whatever, but the picking up of the Nong Naose moment by a class of commoners who are facing a drought, who are facing encroachment on their land, who are facing the decimation of their cattle through lung sickness, virus much similar, I guess, to COVID, but for cattle, if I can put it that way, um, and who were saying to the aristocratic layer among the coastal society that we're not going to pay this cattle tribute anymore. We're not going to be told by you when we must slaughter or not slaughter, um, which I think in many ways is a very different type of interpretation of that historic event. Um, and I think we are in a similar moment. Uh, of course, with significant differences, but we're in a similar moment in terms of the outcomes and implications it's going to have if it continues in the shape that we see. So this idea that if we have a generalized crisis where you hit uh, you know, all of your upstream supply chains, you, know, you even hit potentially uh, you know, water waste treatment plants and all of that stuff, uh, and still do that on the basis of creating successive waves of unrest, uh, so that you can draw concessions from the system. Don't be surprised when, you know, uh, maybe the coup or insurrection is over, that we have a generalized system of hunger and crisis that leaves us vulnerable to so many other things. Okay, so okay, let's okay, let's take a step back in terms of um, the argument. When you say you see more austerity, why? Because we can see that this is not going to work. For me. I yeah, do. I'm saying that's that's what I'm hearing from the financial cluster that you were talking about. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing the financial cluster say we can't afford the basic income grant. I'm hearing the financial cluster say we can't afford the social relief of distress grant. I'm hearing the financial cluster saying many other things that are suggesting that the aggressive path of fiscal consolidation of trying to hit a primary surplus is still the path. That's what I'm hearing. Yes, because the thing is that there's been... <laughs> The thing is that you've got two schools of thoughts in it. And that's why I say it's a thing. It's what are you solving for? Currently, you have people going hungry. Mm. Any basic income grant will not 100% solve that, but it will allow people to breathe. That's how I look mm. at it. Because I don't think the amount is even high enough. Same thing with... And, and it mitigates the shock on demand. Yeah? Yes. Mm. You then... The introduction of the grant, of course, leads to consumption, increased consumption, increased mm. consumption because people have money now. And it's it's an inter it's a made to an intervention to enable people to, um, to 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 move out of poverty. It's literally made. It's a social intervention. It's sort of a mm. backstop. That's how I've always thought mm. of it. In, it's a backstop. Now, the question then becomes is basic question there becomes, can we afford not to? And for me, I don't, 
idle idle people it's it's, it's what was happening in south africa and that's what we even were chatting with was yanda was what's happening in south africa south america copy and paste we're not even unique exactly we're not even unique we're not even doing anything revolutionary it's it's it, that's why i was like is it a revolutionary actually outcome but i think we are at it at a point or i'd like to say at a nexus where if we don't do something now we have to we have to do something because we've seen this play out that's why i say south africa it's not we're not unique we're not special we've seen this play out and mm. what it leads to is once you get the understanding, if you allow these groups to form to and give in to their demands and 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 and, and, and don't try to address the root causes, they gather, they become bigger, they multiply, and we have a coup d'etat. We have a coup d'etat. Um, that's just how the model goes. If we don't have a coup d'etat, which is outcome A, outcome B, we then we then go into the criminality aspects, which then creates um, another layer of power. Not to say criminality doesn't exist in these, um, obviously, these groupings already, but you then add a level of criminality and that scale brings a second, what I would like to think about as another power, basically what's happening in Mexico, basically Mexico, where you have two centers of power. You have the political leadership and then you have the cartels. It's, it, it is quite well known. And that for me will then aggregate sure. other social ills, will then aggregate other social ills. We are already the capital on GBV. Um, and I think it's less about, I mean, just, just, I think you're right. I mean, that austerity is probably the one thing that can drive a generalized crisis uh, and breakdown you know, of the political compact in that way that you're suggesting, um, much akin to a narco state. Mm. Um, and, and I think you and Ben Fogel would agree on that. Uh, he wrote a similar piece, um, you know, in one of the uh, publications, I think for Al Jazeera as well. Uh, and I think you're right. And you see that what the other issue is that you, you also handicap your ability to drive a state-led response to that. So if you look, for instance, at the type of uh, implications of austerity for the police service, just the budget cuts, um, I mean, let me give you a sense. Um, there's been, between 2017 and 2020, around 4.8% you know, of a rise in policing budgets. Now, I think that's some of the things that Zianda says, she's unclear about where some of that money has gone to if our forensic system doesn't work. But the response now over the next three years through to 2024 is a negative 0.8% growth rate in allocations. The largest piece of that budget, which is visible policing, is set to decline by over 2%. Uh, and that's like more than half of the police budget. You still have backlogs in forensic stuff, uh, the lack of rape kits, the lack of just basic day-to-day -day stuff that's needed for policing. And then you also have to police a riotous and, ins and insurrectionary moment. And you saw the police stretched thin. And then that's when you end up having a situation where this type of a neo-feudal order where private security comes in, where people, you know, opportunistic criminal elements in certain communities arm, you know, groupings and militia. And we saw it in Phoenix, you know, uh, who go out indiscriminately kill people on the basis of race 
because to be black in that context is to be seen as somebody maybe who was party to the looting. They loot some of the loot that's looted, you know, as the police minister was saying. So, you know, and all of these things cannot be divorced from declining budgets, cannot be divorced from the subjective weaknesses that are being spoken about at the Zondo Commission, the subjective failures, uh, to be honest, of, uh, you know, the leadership and some of the things that have happened, you know, under uh, the purview of uh, many of our leaders. Um, so, so I think for me, those two issues, austerity just makes more worse. It just sharpens those issues so much more. Um, and the fallout becomes this generalized state of, you know, uh, affairs where if we go in numbers, the risk of any of us being caught is, is very limited. Um, and that's the tactic. But I think for me, the more insidious tactic is the one of just targeting critical pieces of infrastructure um, to trigger mass joblessness, you know, um, and in many instances, mass hunger. Mm, yeah, that definitely. Um, I, 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 Devon will never recover <laughs> unless they do something dramatic. Plastic. Yeah, dramatic. Yeah. It will. I don't even think people. Um, I think most people are looking at the retail looting. They're not looking at what was targeted: the warehousing, mm. the logistics. Mm. They're not looking at the critical and um, key firms, large firms, calling force majeure. But I mean, Nesibol, let's talk about not, not just Durban. And I think that you know you make a very good point there. The issue with Durban is that it, you're hitting at multiple stages in the value chain, right? Mm. You're hitting retail. You're hitting you know, your freighted logistics, you're hitting your warehousing storage, you're hitting, you know, even your primary production in some cases. But in the interior of KZN, I mean, places like uh, Nongoma, Richmond, Zimkulu, uh, you know, I mean, I was speaking to one of the landlords, you know, who sent us a damage assessment. It was crazy. Uh, and there it's more difficult because that one shopping center is where you collect your grant. It's where you get some of your basic foodstuffs. And there isn't a diversity of potential operations you could get some of the same things from as you would find maybe in Durban and, and, and some of its surrounding areas. Yes, it, that's, I think, I, 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 sometimes when I look at it, I, I, I think I can't help but think of the cruelty of this whole thing. The cruelty. Because retail shops, retail shops are easy to replace. The cost, um, they tend to be quite well insured. The ones where I'm worried about is little things like your once you go into the logistics freight, you have a mm. redirection. So, so quite interesting. So, um, Yoko did um, Yoko, which is um, which is an app um, that specifically looks at small business. They were doing some stats in terms of the fallout in Durban. They said, no, we had a in Dur in KZN, we had an 80% drop of revenue. That's on top of the pandemic. So they're basing this against pandemic numbers. Pandemic, which is still half of what they used to earn in 2019. So you're now chopping up. And, and I think the reason why I mentioned Yoko is because Yoko is usually mainly used by very small business. And that gives you an indications. And these are the business groupings that are not well insured, um, do not have, in many cases, a lot of the entrepreneurs don't have the... The, the, the gap stop, they don't have the ability oh. to. And that's for me, the bigger concern is that when they, so their numbers are something else because that's, that's the small business and their ability to recover from this is, 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 is unless, like I said, I, I do think this is sort of a Damascus moment. This is sort of Damascus moment where you have, they need to be clear, clear. This is the time to act now. 
we should have acted before, but as a collab. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that is collab. We are here yeah, now. So yeah. we've got this. And if we don't act now, this is what's. And the thing with me is that it's, it, again, finance cluster, Tito's tweets aside, Tito's tweets aside, we have history of, we, we have live case studies of what will happen if we don't act now. Yeah, and I think yeah. those are the reasons why I think the conversation is coming out now because we have examples of what would happen. Right now, what happened um, is not something that we predicted, was in the predictive. It was something seen like maybe in the future, in the future, this will happen. But now that it's happened, we are here. There's very clear outcomes in terms of very clear direction of you you can see that if we don't do this 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 then that if we don't seek to prioritize um inequality inequality if we don't seek to prioritize that in its form in its form currently we need to prioritize and that that doesn't become a priority we will it literally like i, I think that we had this chat on radio where i was like i was like mm. no this will be like a walk in the park if we don't do something no definitely i mean and i think you're right because and that's why i come back to the question i was asking you you know who is more receptive to now this message and and i would argue it's a it's a particular layer in you know the people who work on these things who comment on these things who you know reflect on these things who are affected by these things um, but you can't run away from the fact that you still have a very strong layer in the society that is still saying, well, we don't want a basic income grant because that takes away your dignity and one's dignity is the ability to wake up and work. And so there's a lot of this paternalistic and moralizing tone to an enduring response against welfare interventions in the societies that is the most unequal in the, in, in the world, that has the highest rate of economic non-participation. Um, it's crazy. I mean, that you still have people who are saying, uh, yeah, let's not give young people uh, uh, RTP home if you like be beneath the age of 59 because you can still go and work. Work where? That's the thing. That's the thing. I, and it, for me, uh, uh, like, sometimes I think our people don't think, our leadership people don't think, they don't listen to people. If our economy is not employee absorbing, it's not people absorbing. Our, our economy right now is structured into shedding and the shedding will continue unless you reimagine. And I, I like the way you need to rethink in terms of what do we actually need to do? What is, what are the interventions that we actually need to do? Because this current trajectory that we're going into, um, leads down to a certain path that's how i look at it it leads down to a specific path if you don't seek to address this thing now you are going to create and i and i and i just because i was reading something some of the your fellow economists your fellow professional people talking about how it it it, it a basic income guard doesn't lead to economic growth um we all know that's false it does it's just consumption-led growth but it's not permanent, but it does lead to an uptick in revenue. It, it does actually, it actually does. Um, and in terms of, and they were quoting some research and we need more people to participate in the economy. The exclusion and the non-participation is what's going to fuel the mm. violence. And, and I think Snesipo, in a way you've summarized what the book is about. 
Um, and it's weird that, um, I mean, it, whenever I go and reread parts of it, um, I feel in so many ways that it like touches on some of what we've seen over the last few days. Our economy misfires for that precise reason that you just mentioned. Too yeah, few people are involved in it. Too much production happens in too few places. And our economy is going to continue to misfire until we diversify where we produce. We get more and more people participating in the economy. And that participation doesn't look like sometimes a formal job. Do you get what I'm saying? It doesn't look like nice package 40 to 45 hour uh, a job at, you know, uh, um, you know, massive, uh, I guess, you know, uh, multiples of the median wage. No, no, no. But it's about saying, allow people who are already creating their own livelihoods, continue to assist them to expand that, to scale that. If Snesipo, for instance, I've planted yellow maize to feed my chickens and to feed other animals that I have, and I sell that livestock from time to time and I do whatever. Our responsibility is to make sure that we complement, amplify, and enhance what you are doing. If it means you need to get a shed where you can crush the stuff, add value to it, sell it for a higher price, then that must be the focus of our economic actions. And if we say we are economic activists, we must agitate for that to happen. At a very like granular level, if I can put it that way, uh, when I say it, because you know, I always come back to the same comparison. African countries that are much poorer than us have much higher employment of those who measure it properly. And that's because they didn't have the type of active disruption of our agrarian transformation as has happened to us in this country. And that's why the history is so important. That Tina, we were disrupted on a path. And that disruption is something that if we're interested in making this economy mean something to people, is something that we first have to address. And in addressing it, it's also about making sure that you the lens of expanding participation becomes your primary focus. You can have low inflation if people are hungry because prices are not gonna move because people aren't buying anything, it's fine. You can have that. But it's something entirely different to frame your entire monetary policy in a way that says, can we assist those who extend lending to productive economic actors in the society rather than those who are interested in speculation or the, just the sphere of exchange? And so those are some of the debates that, that are in the book. But I think the current moment you write, you spot on, that that's, what, that's exactly what's happening. Um, and if we don't resolve it, there's always going to be the seeds for a potential you know, other emergence. Anyway, I think this is where we're going to have to end off. Any last words? Yeah, thanks for the invite. Um, and yeah, I just encourage people to go and get the book. If they're looking for a signed copy, um, they can email lisa at clisbeholdings.co.za. Um, and yeah, um, she'll let you know how you can go through it and we deliver. Uh, but yeah, real pleasure to, to have been on the show, Snesipo, and continue to do the great work. Thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you so much. And it's also available on Exclusive Books, Loot and all these other great, great, great places. Thank you so much.